0: Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us in our CMEO briefcase called Personalizing Pain Care, the Use of Opioid Risk Assessment Tools in Pain Management. This is a briefcase that is supported by an independent educational grant from opioid analgesic REMS program companies. I am Jonathan Guaree. I am an anesthesiologist and interventional pain physician at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, where I've been practicing for 10 years. Uh, My practice is primarily focused on uh, opioid sparing techniques. Uh, I do a fair amount of opioid prescribing also. I also do interventional procedures, implantation of spinal cord stimulation. And I would say my secret sauce is the treatment of complex regional pain syndrome. I'm also joined by Dr. Charles Argoff, who I'll allow to introduce himself.
1: Hi, thank you so much, Dr. Gorey. I'm a neurologist by primary training and early in my career really focused on um, headache and pain management. I'm a professor in the Department of Neurology at Albany Medical Center and Albany Medical College, where I'm also vice chair of our department. I direct our um, Pain Management Fellowship as well as our Comprehensive Pain Center. And I um, have similar interests as Dr. Gorey, As you might imagine, as a neurologist, we get many referrals for headache as well as more chronic pain, but I manage pumps and stimulators um, and um, uh, play an active role in clinical research and I'm
0: delighted to be part of this program. So I'll first go over our learning objective, which is to employ results from opioid risk tools as a resource to inform patient and clinician decision-making when considering use of opioids for pain management. Uh, We're going to start with a patient case, and the patient is Sandra R., who's visiting her pain specialist. And Dr. Argoff, will you uh, talk a little bit about uh, Sandra?
1: Sure. So, um, as we see, she's a 34-year-old woman, and she's had a history of fibromyalgia for over 10 years. And when you know, as many of you may know, uh, aerobic exercise and even swimming, um, water therapy um, has been have been one of the most important treatments for fibromyalgia. And her symptoms have been well-controlled with swimming and exercise and medications until the last year. And over that time period, she's developed a progressive numbness, burning, and tingling below her knees bilaterally. And she has a known history of type 2 diabetes, depression, um, obesity, generalized anxiety disorder, and chronic fatigue syndrome. With respect to her current medical treatment, she's using duloxetine 30 milligrams Uh, pregabalin, 150 milligrams twice daily, tramadol, 50 milligrams, four times daily as needed for her pain, and metformin, 1,000 milligrams twice daily. In the past, she has undergone a trial of amitriptyline, but she didn't tolerate it.
0: So uh, when we look at her musculoskeletal exam, she's five out of five strengths in all extremities. So her motor function isn't affected, and she has normal range of motion. We don't see any swollen or erythematous joints, so no signs of acute joint swelling, no signs of acute joint arthritis. Uh, Neurologically, she has some uh, reduced reflexes bilaterally in her Achilles, and she has a diminished monofilament test. And so uh, as we are checking her sensation, really in the bottom of her feet, she seems to have some diminished sensation on both the right and the left. She drinks occasionally, one or two times a month, and it's always important to really understand the support network of someone who has diabetic peripheral neuropathy or really any chronic pain. And so she lives with her husband, she has two kids, and she has uh, extended family that lives nearby. So I would say based on this, it seems, at least on the surface, that she has a really excellent support network. Uh, and per her family history, we've done substance use disorder screening, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the case, or at least risk for substance use disorder, but it seems that she is negative for any kind of risk for substance use disorder, or at least for substance use disorder. Um, Dr. Argoff, as we continue on, can you talk a little bit about kind of as you treat patients both as a neurologist and as a renowned pain specialist. And what are your goals for therapy when you treat patients who have diabetic peripheral neuropathy?
1: Well, I mean, my goal is for anyone with chronic pain, and I'm sure you would agree, is to help someone reduce their pain intensity, help, you know, develop a program, and that could be multimodal, multidisciplinary, um, and different for each person that allows for, you know, 30 to 50% or greater pain reduction um, but also that it enhances that person's ability to function. So I'm sure we've both experienced, and many people who are listening and seeing this program, have had people say they feel better, but they're still in pain. Uh, of course, the holy grail is 100% pain uh, reduction, but we try to get uh, pain meaningfully reduced. And for someone with – so the interesting thing about uh, this person is – That although she has a history of fibromyalgia, and we're not going to necessarily say that that doesn't exist in her, she's also developed findings that are consistent, as you pointed out, with a peripheral neuropathy. And it's quite possible um, that, you know, logical um, that she has a a diabetic peripheral neuropathy because of her history of diabetes. Um, And so we want to kind of start thinking about what can you do for someone with a painful peripheral neuropathy in addition to their fibromyalgia, but painful peripheral neuropathy and diabetes. So in addition to pain reduction and and such, you certainly want to maximize and optimize their diabetic management. So, you know, really getting their hemoglobin A1C that may be partnering with an endocrinologist or whoever's managing their diabetes. So glucose control, glycemic control is maximized. Um, Educating people, uh, in this case, this this patient about, about what can be done. And really trying to um um help that person um be as, as functional and as uh pain free as possible um with acceptable side effect profile. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I I I, pretty, I very much agree. I think one of the benefits of being a pain-fest specialist is that we really get to focus on quality of life instead of curing disease and this really, and I know a lot of patients with diabetic peripheral neuropathy, and really with any painful disease state, they, they often come in with a specific goal or, or something that they used to do that they no longer can do, which kind of pushes them over the edge to go see a doctor. And you know, I'm in Arkansas, and so most of my patients want to go to Walmart. Uh, I'm sure it's a little bit different in in New York, but we all have. No, no,
1: they they want to go to Walmart. We they like want to that. go to Walmart too. Yeah, so there yeah. you
0: go. It's like. People always have something that they and – they, and oftentimes with my older patients, it's like I want to be able to drive to Walmart, go in, not have to use a cart, and not have to depend on my grandchild to get me through the store because she is always rolling her eyes at me while I'm shopping. And so um, kind of working with patients to see what can we do to get them there. So part of that is the ability to walk, and patients with diabetic peripheral neuropathy oftentimes may have trouble walking or keeping their balance due to lack of appropriate reception. Um, It could be um, allowing them to be able to wear shoes and socks um, without kind of any kind of severe um, allodynia or hyperalgesia. And so I agree. It's really getting patients back to as much of a quality of life as possible. And of course, the challenge with kind of high dose opioids in some of these patients is that unfortunately, You can always get someone's pain to zero, just you sometimes have to sacrifice a lot to get them to zero. And so, figuring out what is the middle ground where we're maximizing function, but we're also maximizing pain control. Totally agree.
1: You know, I think it's really interesting that you bring up um, opioids. I know this program is focused on risk assessment for opioids, but there, as I'm pretty sure you'll agree, um, there are many other. Uh, therapies, including, let's say, pharmacologic therapies and even non-pharmacologic therapies that are non-opioid-based that, um, not to take away from the potential benefit of an opioid um, in terms of pain relief, they do come with a number of side effects and risks in general that, um, and all medicines have risks, but certainly there are certainly considered for painful diabetic neuropathy management. And even for fibromyalgia management, since she also has fibromyalgia, uh, other uh, agents that we would consider, I think, first line or second line. And and you know, I, I wonder how what your you know your approach is in that setting. I mean, certainly, um, it, when someone comes to see me, I'm going to try. We want to control their pain, um, and um, we we certainly want to take into account our other comorbidities, which in this case is the diagnosis among other things, of fibromyalgia, as well as diabetes, you know, and we've made of diabetes already, or has acknowledged that, but, you know, what we don't, we don't, um, there's, there are many other treatments that we might consider first, um, and so depending upon where that person has been, um, and what they've used, you know, we mentioned that she's used amitriptyline, um, you know, what other um, antidepressants for analgesic purposes has she used? Has she used uh, duloxetine? Has she used uh, the metabolite of amitriptyline, nortriptyline, which sometimes is better tolerated. Um, has she used any of the anticonvulsants, anti-seizure medicines like pregabalin or gabapentin that are considered first-line agents? Um, but uh, have, has she used any of these? Um, and I, I, I often find that um, um, it, there are many other steps that I might consider taking um, in, for somebody before uh, embarking on a trial of opioid therapy for someone
0: like this patient. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I think you said it very well and that kind of the first step is is kind of partnering to make sure they have good glycemic control uh, because you want to stop the progression of the disease. Um, and then kind of moving down the par- pharmacotherapy range, I always, um, and I think, you know, the first line agents we have listed here is normally my go-to. The combination of duloxetine with either pregabalin or gabapentin is kind of my first My first line usually, normally uh, choosing pregabalin or gabapentin based on their insurance coverage, Um, kind of moving on to uh, tricyclics. uh, And I normally use nortriptyline because it's better tolerated than amitriptyline, but um, using one of those or using another SNRI. Um, And then I think you're kind of at that decision tree. And that's normally where I have a conversation with patients about. Um, should we move on to a low dose oral opiate or should we move on to uh, one of the surgical options? Um, And uh, a lot of my practice, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, a lot of the physicians who refer to me have often tried the first line agents or sometimes the second line agents before I see patients. So I'm oftentimes starting with that later conversation. Um, And when I look at the surgical options, Um, You know, just as you mentioned, I I do all three of these surgical options. I do intrathecal pumps, dorsal root ganglion simulation, and spinal cord stimulation. Um, I probably do more of the latter two for diabetic peripheral neuropathy than I do intrathecal pumps. Um, I do a fair amount of dorsal root ganglion simulation in my practice. Um, I was one of the authors in the um, in the study that brought spinal cord stimulation to market for diabetic peripheral neuropathy. So um, I've I've been doing spinal cord stimulation for diabetic peripheral neuropathy for five or six years now, but I'd also be interested in in kind of what what you do when the first and second line agents normally fail or when they do so just, fail. Just to clarify, were you
1: on the JAMA Neurology paper?
0: Uh, yes, I was. I was one of the authors in the-, uh, so, so, in the so, so,
1: of... so am I, and I know yeah. so is your colleague, Dr. Peterson. Yeah. And and so we'll, let's come back to that for a second. So, it, it, um, um, you know, I think that that how you, I think, um, for those, it, it always amazes me how different our practices are across the country and even mm-hmm. within the same state. So, for example, we have a really large IV lidocaine infusion program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we can offer people IV lidocaine infusions on a regular basis, which really help many people. Uh, we can also use – we have in, within the area uh, ketamine infusion programs, um, and some – you know, that's kind of an emerging area to explore. Um, I certainly um, – so the high-frequency uh, HF10 um, uh, 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 stimulation program that we both uh, were part of, um, you know, led to the FDA approval of spinal cord stimulation, um, the first FDA approval for 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 di- painful diabetic neuropathy, but what's interesting – for us, also, is that we um, I manage many pumps, and we preferentially prefer a drug like uh, ziconotide, which um, is a non-opioid calcium, N-voltage-gated calcium channel blocker um, that is particularly useful for neuropathic pain. And we've actually um, published a kind of a guide in neuromodulation, um, a guide to going up on the dose, kind of titrating very slowly to allow a person to tolerate the medicine. Um, but what you what you have available in, in for someone with painful diabetic neuropathy I think very much depends upon the resources that are in your backyard um, because managing pumps, managing stimulation um, requires a certain level of expertise and resources that are available um, um, the, the other, one point about this patient is that she's on a dose of duloxetine that's thirty milligrams But that because we didn't discuss it yet, but it could be because she was never titrated to a the FDA-approved dose of 60 milligrams, or she couldn't tolerate it. And what we find often, and I would imagine that much of the audience has found this as well, that when people are titrated to an effective dose of a particular drug, they can't can't always tolerate it. Um, And that's an important consideration when we're considering things. Um, But I think that, you know, when to make the decision to add, the interesting thing about opioids, one of the interesting things to me is that when you look at, um, if we were to look at some publications about, you know, which drugs, or if you use the NNT uh, approach, numbers needed to treat, how many people do you need to treat for one person to get 50% relief? Um, Oral opioids actually have a lower number, which is important. The lower the number, the more likely you ought to get a person to have 50% relief, than pregabalin, gabapentin, and duloxetine. And so um, one of the so from a pain relief point of view, oral opioids may be helpful for neuropathic pain, and in this case, potentially diabetic neuropathy-related pain. But they also have a low numbers needed to harm, or NNH, meaning that um, they're also likely to have side effects, which um, could be, you know, potentially, um, you know, uh, uh, serious, and we have to keep in mind. And so when to add an opioid and how to do it, and I, I really like what you said about adding low dose to an already established treatment so that it may not be first line or second line, but it might really boost the benefit that these other medicines or other treatments might be helping somebody. You know, I was, was just one last point before I turn it back to you. You know, we've had people benefit from intraspinal um or a spinal cord stimulator or both, and they're still experiencing. I mean, I don't have how many of your patients um, tell you that they've had 100% relief from, you know, spinal cord stimulation or one treatment. And we really do, um, in my experience, need to keep in mind that like other chronic conditions, like chronic diabetes, chronic uh, 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 you know, many, many chronic medical conditions, more than one treatment may be needed to optimize a the therapy. So whatever we approach, whatever we talk about today, I, I'm going to just want to put out there that as, as we talk about, you know, risk assessment for people who might be initiated on a trial oral opioids, um, it's my personal experience and opinion that it works best as part of a multidisciplinary process and not as a monotherapy, as the only treatment.
0: I I think we're we're in lockstep agreement. Uh, Before we kind of move on to the audience response question, I had one more thing I wanted to touch on. Uh, How much do you use topical medications in your practice? I know that there are a lot of people who are using um, either low-dose capsaicin creams or high-dose capsaicin patches. Uh, for patients, how much is that in your algorithm at this time?
1: Oh, so that's a really important question. Actually, there's another method, and I'll just bring up as well, since uh, we are um, talking about other approaches. Um, so the, eight, the, the 8% capsaicin patch um, is indicated, is that they approve for uh, the treatment of painful di- diabetic neuropathy with, with a um, half-hour application um, of the patch. Um, we do them qu- quite often in our practice, um, and again, it's part of other treatments. Um, and one um, um, a publication that I was a part of about two years ago um, looked at um, the progressive um, benefit that a person might get, and um, meaning that when we embark on treating somebody with the 8% capsaicin patch, um, which compared to the 0.25% topical creams, is over 300 times more content, you know, more potent. Um, we find that people may not experience benefit until the second or the third time, or if they do experience benefit the first time, they continue to experience benefit, so that by the third or fourth time, they're really feeling much much better. And so, it's important with many of our therapies, as I think you probably agree, that some of them re- require more more patience by by all of us, in the patient as well as we as the providers to take effect. And that's something that's u- not not unique, but seen with the 8% capsaicin patch. Um, that's a nice treatment option, as you, you mentioned topical, because there are no systemic side effects and the skin might feel like a sunburn for a day or two or so after the procedure, but it's otherwise really well tolerated. Also topical lidocaine. Um, you know, the 5% lidocaine patch has been shown to be effective in combination with one of the first-line agents that we talked about, pregabalin, pentanodiloxetine, but also on its own uh, in painful diabetic neuropathy. There was a study that was published in Muscle and Nerve not, th- not so long ago um, about that. I think was done at the University of Rochester. And um, another uh, uh, agent that we use, and there's evidence for this, at least in, in, uh, published in Neurology, and I think also the Clinical Journal of Pain, um, is the potential use subcutaneously, and this is off-label, of um, onabotulinum toxin A, uh, which for brand name purposes um, is Botox. And I'm saying the brand name because all the t- neurotoxins are different. Um, but that, that, uh, uh, several groups have pointed out how beneficial um, this may be um, in people with um, painful diabetic neuropathy, especially in the low extremities. So um, those are some of the um, non-systemic therapies that we might incorporate in our practice as well.
0: Yeah, I also wanted to I'm I'm glad that you uh mentioned your publication on uh the 8% capsation patch because that, you know, that definitely changed our practice and kind of the idea of sometimes you may need to try something more than once before you kind of decide to move on to something else. Um we're going to move on to our audience response question and the question is which of the following is the most important to assess before prescribing opioids for pain for this patient. Okay, thank you for participating. We're going to um, move on to kind of talk about risk of opioids. And Dr. Argoff, can you talk a little bit about, do you use the opioid risk tool and how do you use it in your practice?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, and um, uh, this was developed uh, by Lynn Webster uh, in Utah. and. Um, Um, many years ago. And um, what I want to say first and foremost, and I think it's really important for those of you um, listening to this program and participating um, uh, to to note that no one is without risk. So even if a person scores zero on this risk tool, and you can see it on the left-hand side of the slide here, um, that means they're at low risk and they're at low risk of misuse and abuse. Misuse meaning not using the medication as prescribed. Abuse meaning that it's used for a non-medical purpose. Um, And so um, the family history of substance abuse, a personal history of substance abuse, um, age between 16 and 45, um, history of pre-adolescent sexual abuse. Interestingly in females didn't turn out in the evaluation and development of this tool to add to the risk in men. and psychological disease um, are all the five cate are the five categories. And um, I think what's really helpful about this tool, and what it, first of all, it's it's, it's very straightforward and uh, quote unquote easy to use in a busy clinical practice. And it allows all of us, each of us who are considering a controlled substance, specifically an opioid therapy for somebody. Um, with chronic pain, in this case, let's say chronic painful diabetic neuropathy-related pain, is a person in a position that if they're a low, moderate, or high risk, does my practice and just the generic my practice have the the, the tools to treat somebody with opioid therapy if they're at high risk? They're at high risk, that means we need to look at, you know, what resources do we have Force, um opioid use disorder treatment? And are we trained to do that ourselves? Do we have colleagues in our community, in our practice who we can call on to help? Um, if there's a moderate or low risk, do we have, you know, are we gonna, be, how it, we, we need to monitor the, each person on chronic opioid therapy with urine drug screening and other screening, maybe pill counts, um, frequent visits. Um, I mean, we're you know, we're trying to do what we can to help somebody, but with as little harm as possible. And so I, I would um, urge people when they're using the opioid risk tool to use it not only in general, but to say, do I have the tools in my practice to be able to manage this person? Um, because um, uh, you never know how a patient's going to behave, even if they're low risk, um, but certainly if they're at high risk, that's something to keep in mind.
0: I I love how you frame that. Um, and I think that is a, an ideal use of this tool. You know, I, I just wanted to drive home the point that um, risk prediction is not a diagnosis of OUD, but it is risk of developing, as, as as you very eloquently described. And it also is not a predictive tool. So just because someone is high dose or high risk doesn't necessarily mean that um, they're not a candidate for opioids, but they may be a candidate under the right level of surveillance and with the right level of uh, really, treatment, and whether that be uh the addition of you know someone who can diagnose um, opioid use disorder or with the certain kind of um certain kind of other um alternative treatment pathways, whether that be cognitive behavioral therapy, other things that can go along with the prescribing of opioids that some practices may not have, I think that was said very, very well, thank you. Um sure. now we're going to go into the treatment plan for Sandra and you know we we kind of went through all of the ways that both of us treat patients with uh diabetic peripheral neuropathy and fibromyalgia um and so this is really kind of understanding or kind of a quick summary of what to do and and we're kind of early in the pathway with Sandra so at this point we probably wouldn't make it to some of the surgical options given That I will say in my practice, I like to give patients kind of, I like to walk them through their entire care continuum on that first visit. So I'll talk about option A, option B, option C, option D, option E, um, and tell them that, you know, my goal is for the least invasive thing to work, so option A to work. But if it doesn't, we've got option B, we've got option C, so that patients don't lose hope and so that they keep coming back so we can discuss kind of what their care will look like in the future. Um, the first thing, as we say, it's it's like what you do in trauma. You stop the bleeding. You don't want the disease to get worse, so you want to make sure that their glucose control is improved. And so we uh, check hemoglobin A1C somewhat regularly in some of our patients who have diabetic peripheral neuropathy, um, especially if they're not being checked kind of by their primary care doctor or by an endocrinologist. I think there's a lot of we talked about all the different medications we could choose from that may be a, a better use of, uh, better than tramadol for this patient. We talked about, you know, this patient's on pregamblin, this patient's on, um, uh, this patient's on a SNRI, but we may look at some of the other um, antineuropathic agents or some of the other antidepressant agents for this patient. Um, anytime you do a dose change, it's ideal to follow up in one to four weeks. I normally think about four weeks, especially for anti-neuropathic medications, you wanna give time for those medicines to really start to work. Sometimes you may have to do a dose titration, especially with uh, something like gabapentin, where you may have to start with a lower dose and slowly work up over time to the correct dose. Um, Also thinking about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, pain reprocessing, or any kind of psychotherapy referral. Anything that you'd like to add for Sandra? Uh,
1: sure. I mean, I think that um, uh, uh, we have to, uh, we might want to consider also, um, you know, uh, since we, I, I'm sure all believe in evidence-based medicine, that, you know, um, if you're going to think about an opioid therapy, um, one particular opioid therapy has actually received specific FDA approval for the treatment of diabetic neuropathy, and that's Tepentadol. Um, and so if you're going to switch tramadol to a longer-acting agent, there's longer-acting tramadol, but there's also uh, tapentadol, which is interesting because it is both an, a new receptor um, agonist, so it binds, it's an opioid, but it's also a norepinephrine reuptake-inhibiting drug, which may be helpful for her fibromyalgia in a way I'm just hypothesizing um, since she has more than one problem. Um, the other point, so that's, that's interesting because, you know, it's specifically the long-acting form of tipenadol. Has been specifically approved for painful diabetic neuropathy um, or neuropathic pain associated with diabetes. What was also interesting, um, I totally agree with the comment you made uh, about monitoring one to four weeks uh, to assess efficacy. But since you know, a program this program is in large part based upon reducing risks associated with opioid use um, and assessing for risks when we change an opioid dose or when we prescribe an opioid for the first time, that initial one to four weeks afterwards is also truly important in my experience, and I think in, in general in people's experiences, to monitor for side effects and safety. And so whether or not that's in person, which is always nice, but maybe not practical, or someone in our office is calling up the patient uh, to assess for you know safety, that's a vulnerable time when you change an opioid dose. So I think that's a point I just wanted to get across as well.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. And I and I also want to throw one more in is, is that uh, to definitely know the laws of your state, because that can also, unfortunately, determine some of those follow-up rules. In Arkansas, you cannot uh, alter the dose of an opioid without an in-person visit. That's a titration up or a titration down. And so for us, we have to do, we unfortunately can't do a lot of these conversations about opioids over telemedicine and we uh, do them face to face. But I know that in a lot of states, uh, you can do them over telemedicine. So definitely be knowledgeable about kind of what the rules are that we all have to abide by. Um, and as we're doing that, it's really important to monitor opioid use. And there's many ways that we have, or many tools that we have to monitor opioid use. Uh, hopefully all of you have uh, have the opportunity or have access to the prescription prescription drug monitoring database. Uh, In our hospital system, we have integrated that into EPIC, so it pops in when we look into our EMR. But anytime we start, change, or prescribe opioids, uh, it's required by our hospital system that you have to look into the PDMP. And we have built in hard stops into our EMR to ensure that the PDMP is checked and signed off on before uh, opioids are written or changed. And I think that really speaks to how important we think that is, uh, and and I was the director of opioid stewardship for our hospital system that kind of put that into place, but how important that safety check is to make sure that patients aren't doctor shopping, getting other opioids that you don't know about, and maybe combining medications that may be dangerous. Um, we also do urine drug screening in our practice. We do it at random, and we do it based on risk. So part of what determines risk is, is the opioid risk tool also patient's history and kind of your interaction with those patients. And so uh, we do an opioid agreement with all of our patients uh, or a controlled substance agreement uh, that really talks about a lot of these things, uh, whether it be drug screening that we'll be monitoring them using the prescription drug monitoring database that we will um, also, but as a part of that agreement, we also commit to do what we can to make sure that we try to control our patient's pain safely. And so I I often think of patients often think of these agreements as punitive, but I think that if they're phrased in a certain way, it really is an agreement between the patient and the physician to make sure that they're working together to make sure that a patient is safe. Uh, Sometimes when patients do are at higher risk, especially risk of diversion or I have concerns that patients may be overtaking their medication. Then sometimes we will even uh, discuss having patients bring in their pills for pill counts. Anything that you'd like to add, Doctor Argoff, when it comes to monitoring patients? I
1: don't know. I I I think um, um, urine drug screening is also very important, a very important tool, and I think it's important um, to add to what you said, which I, I totally agree with. Um, to 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 get a baseline urine drug screen when you initiate opioid therapy, uh, going under the principle of trusting and verifying. Some people may not just tell you that they're using other substances. They may not even know that they're using substances that might interfere with the safety of an opioid. But I think what you said about safety is something that I think is really important to partner with with the patient, that that it's not punitive, that our goal, our responsibility as prescribers is to do what we can do to help as safely as possible. And the measures that we, that you just talked about um, um, are measures that are designed to help improve this safety. Um, and, um, and and I think most people this will resonate with. Of course, people who suffer from a di- disease of addiction may be not so willing to accept that or may still feel that we're being punitive but overwhelmingly i think people really do understand the importance of of monitoring what they do what we we're, we're doing together in managing them on opioid therapy
0: exactly and and i think to add to that we are you know i think we've done a lot of talking about you know what many refer to as multimodal therapy but making sure that we're not just singly using opioids and we're maximizing all of the potential adjuvants and non pharmacologic therapies that we can use for patients. And also, really discussing at every visit kind of where patients are, understanding that there may be patients who we may be under treating for their pain, and it may be appropriate to increase their opioids, either do or rotate their opioids due to hyperalgesia or tolerance. Uh, but also, talk to patients about potentially tapering and stopping their opioids if their opioids either aren't working or if the patient is actually having some side effects from opioids, maybe sedation, maybe they're not being as active. Because again, our goal, while our goal is pain control, I think that our overall goal is really an improvement in quality of life. And pain is a big part of quality of life, but so also is function and the ability to interact with the outside world. So sometimes we have to talk to patients about kind of goal setting. And I think I often find that having that goal setting conversation in that first visit really allows you to refocus that patient. You know, if someone says my goal is to play with my grandkids, then you can really refocus them around, you know, is what we're doing really helping you be able to get on the floor and play, you know, connect for with your grandkids? And if the answer is no, then we may need to change course. And changing course may be either increasing, decreasing, or adding or subtracting medications. Um, Just to round things out, I want to remind everyone of our SMART goals. Uh, Our SMART goals are goals that are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and timely. And basically, our SMART goals for uh, this briefcase are to reassess for changes in pain and function at every visit with patients who have chronic pain and to conduct regular opioid risk assessments for patients who are on long-term opioid therapy. As Dr. Argoff said, our goal is to partner with the patient in order to make sure that we're able to provide effective therapy for the patient, but also most importantly, safe therapy as physicians to try to make sure we do no harm. Um, I wanna make sure or remind you to check out our other briefcases in this series focus on the use of multimodal pain management, especially uh, one in low-resource settings. Um, these activities, as well as other educational resources for clinicians and patients, can be found at the CME Outfitters Opioid and Virtual Education Hubs. And just as a reminder, to receive continuing education credit for completing today's activity, Participants must complete the post-test and evaluation online. line um, Dr. Argoff, I want to thank you for joining me on this case, and I want to thank you for a robust conversation about the treatment of fibromyalgia and diabetic peripheral neuropathy.
1: Thank you so much as well. It's great.
0: I'd like to thank uh, CME Outfitters for having us, and I hope that all of you have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much for joining us.